Research Log 33, The Lake Worth Monster. I was familiar with Jim Mars through his interviews with Freeman Fly over the years. After the animal mutilation episode, I was super drained emotionally and energetically, and I was just looking for something a little warmer and fuzzier. My comfort place is the realm of cryptozoology because it stems so well from my background in wildlife biology. So imagine my surprise when I'm scrolling through old newspaper articles on weird monster sightings and I come across the name Jim Mars. As it turns out, in 1969, Jim Mars was the police beat reporter for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, and he actually cut his teeth on the case of the Lake Worth monster. 1969 was a wild year. In April, Sirhan Sirhan was sentenced for the assassination of JFK. In June, the Stonewall riots happened at the Stonewall Inn Gay Bar in New York City. In July, Neil Armstrong supposedly walks on the moon. In August, Woodstock rocks southern New York. But in July of 1969, Fort Worth, Texas was not focusing on any of those other things. They were focusing on a seven-foot monster that was terrorizing the area and was witnessed by hundreds of people within the span of a little over a month. The descriptions vary a little bit between people, but in general, the newspaper reports indicated he was half man, half goat with fur, scales, and possibly horns. So was the monster a mythical satyr? Was he a deformed Bigfoot? Is Bigfoot even a cryptid or is he actually a manifestation of the Phalian phenomenon? These are the questions I hope to answer. Sadly, the two biggest reporters of the Lake Worth monster have passed on, Jim Mars and Sally Ann Clark, who published a semi-fictional book on the monster in August 1969, but we still can attempt to glean the truth of the matter from their work. The first newspaper report of the Lake Worth monster comes in the July 10th, 1969 issue of the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. The police said they had been receiving reports before this, but they never took them seriously. The only reason that this report was taken seriously was because the witnesses were so clearly traumatized from whatever they experienced. Jim Mars writes, John Reichert, along with his wife and two other couples, was parked at Lake Worth about midnight when someone or something leapt from a nearby tree and landed on their car. The thing was described as being covered in scales and being part man and part goat. Reichert said the thing tried to grab his wife, but he drove off before it could touch her. Returning to the scene with police, Reichert pointed out where the attack took place, but no sign of the thing could be found. Reichert showed officers an 18-inch scratch down the side of his car, which he said the thing made with its claw-like hands. This report set off a wave of people looking to bag themselves a monster, and we don't have to wait long for another report. The next day, on July 11th, 1969, Jim Mars writes the following. The Lake Worth monster was reported to have struck again early today, and police are now getting worried that someone is going to get hurt. Today's reports began at midnight, when a youth said he backed his car into a tree after being frightened by the, quote, thing. Soon after the incident, a local radio station broadcast the story and carloads of curious seekers descended on Lake Worth. One of those was Jack Harris, who gave this account of the night. We were driving around trying to find it when we heard it squalling. We heard it before we saw it. I saw it come across the road and I tried to take a picture of it, but the flash didn't go off. I took another picture, but I don't know if I got anything because I was too busy rolling up my window. We watched him run up and down a bluff for a while and other cars arrived. There must have been 30 or 40 people watching him. Well, some of them thought they would get mean with the thing, but about that time, it got a hold of a spare tire that had a rim in it and threw it at our cars. He threw it more than 500 feet and was coming so fast that everyone took off. Everyone jumped back in their cars. 
Earlier, there were some sheriff's deputies there asking us about it, and one of them was sort of laughing like he didn't believe it. But then that thing howled, and I think it stood his hair on end. He decided it wasn't so funny anymore. Those sheriff's men weren't any braver than we were. They ran to get in their car. Witnesses agreed that the thing was big, hairy, and white-looking. Harris said that the thing walks like a man, but didn't look like a man. He was whitish-gray and hairy, he said. And I might have been scared, but he looked like he was seven feet tall and must have weighed about 300 pounds. Harris described the thing as emitting a pitiful cry, like something was hurting him. But it sure didn't sound human, said Harris. Fort Worth police aided in the search for the monster, but were unable to find anything. From Sally Ann Clark's book, we get the account of Jim Stevens. The monster jumped on the hood of his Mustang one night as he and two other men looked for it. He said it was real big and human, like with burnt scars all over its face, arms, and chest. I am six feet four, and the thing is a lot taller than I am. It's at least seven feet, perhaps taller. Mr. Stevens said he tried to shake the thing off his car by rocking his car, and it stayed on the hood of the car until he hit a tree, and then it jumped off and ran into the woods. He said there were two or three hundred dollars damage done to his car. I asked him if he had been drinking. He said, no ma'am, I had been fishing and heard about it, so two friends and myself went looking for it. The only people that don't believe are the ones who haven't seen it. You know, either you see something or you don't. I saw it. Also in Sally Ann Clark's book is a picture of a very large broken limb on a tree. It looks to be about eight to ten inches if I had to guess. And she notes that five people said that they saw the monster break the limb on this tree near the edge of Lake Worth. There were people around the area, particularly the park naturalists, that said that this was just nothing more than a bobcat that had been let loose in the area. Obviously, I find this laughable. A bobcat is not going to look like a man, walk like a man, uh, be anywhere close to seven feet tall and 300 pounds, and is not going to be able to throw a tire. So... If there were bobcat sightings, that would be something else. I don't think that's what this is. I also wanted to mention a weird account of ghosts in the area. This is coming from the same newspaper, Fort Worth Star-Telegram, in their July 14th issue. You've heard of the Lake Worth monster, and now a Fort Worth resident, Mike Kinson, said he and others have seen ghosts on Greer Island. Kinson said the ghosts appear in a great mist in the shape of men, all features of the see-through men are discernible, he said. It's hard to explain, and I know it sounds crazy, said Kinson. We thought it was some kind of trick at first. Kinson said the so-called ghost creatures won't appear if too many people are on the island and make a lot of noise. He has been going out to the island for a year and a half to take a look at the ghosts, and he said he also has seen the monster. Asked what the ghosts do after they are sighted, Hinson said no one has stayed around long enough to find out. So I don't really know what to make of that. There isn't really enough information there to decide whether the ghosts are actually just misidentifications of the Bigfoots or if there's something else going on, if if this is one of those sightings of Bigfoot that is paranormal in nature. It's just hard to tell. I just wanted to mention it because it's weird to have it going on at the same time and it not be related. So those are just some of the accounts of what was going on in the area at the time. As I said, over 100 people witnessed the monster, so there are obviously a lot of reports. I can't obviously go through each one of them here, but I did want to hit the highlights, especially of those early reports coming in from the newspaper. 
So I mentioned earlier that the reports vary. Many do depict a Sasquatch-like creature, which is consistent with the drawing by Bobby Brooks on the cover of Sally Ann Clark's book. Others have taken what I consider a more liberal interpretation of the reports. At the same time that Bobby Brooks was creating his drawings and Sally Ann was creating her book, local sculptor Joe Pack put together his own two-foot-tall plaster representation of the monster. It looks like Cooper from the Trolls, the dog from NeverEnding Story, a dragon, and a unicorn had a baby. In my mind, it's totally inconsistent with the reports I've read. In my opinion, the Lake Worth monster was just a regular Sasquatch, most likely older. There are numerous reports of variation in hair color among Sasquatches, including reports of white or gray hair, and there is speculation that older Sasquatch may gray in the same way that humans do. This could explain both the whimpering cries like it was in pain, and the reason it began to interact so frequently with humans during the summer of 1969. Perhaps it was hoping to scavenge off the humans in a sort of Bigfoot retirement, but my thought is that the pain of old age, maybe arthritis, or old injuries made prolonged hunting difficult. Perhaps it had recently moved from a more remote area into the semi-remote area around Lake Worth to subsist on the abundant fish. Dr. Jeff Meldrum believes that Bigfoots would be descended from Gigantopithecus and would have an omnivorous diet tending towards the herbivorous or frugivorous end of the spectrum, similar to the chimpanzee. But we are learning that chimpanzees actually consume quite a bit more meat than we originally thought. Particularly given the caloric requirement of a creature of that size, I could certainly see a situation where an older individual would need to seek an easier source of protein. And of course, the sudden drop-off in sightings could have been because the monster passed away. At least one person reported shooting the monster and finding a trail of blood. A bullet wound could certainly have led to a serious infection, particularly in an older individual with decreased immune function. We have to remember that most of the people associated with the Lake Worth monster sightings and reporting aren't even alive today, so it's doubtful that the monster is, even if he wasn't of a certain age at the time. The supposed scales, I believe, were misidentifications of the burn scars reported by Jim Stevens. The burns might tie into the possible injury that could have led the monster to change his habits. Fort Worth is an area prone to fires. In 1909, a large fire ravaged the south side of the city. That was one of the impetuses for the Lake Worth Dam being built in 1914. City officials wanted a drinking water source for the city, but also a reservoir in case another fire broke out. In that July 14, 1969 issue of the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, just under the report of the ghosts on Greer Island is a report of 39 separate fires caused by fireworks over the July 4th holiday in Arlington, which is the town just east of Fort Worth. So a Bigfoot in that area getting trapped in a fire and suffering burns seems far more likely than a primate with scales. Speaking of fur and scales, though, pause this and go look up the pink fairy armadillo. It is the world's smallest armadillo species, and that thing is so weird looking that I thought it was fake when I first saw it, like straight up jackalope situation. Back to the topic at hand, though. The burns may also explain the reports of horns. Now, I'm not sure the monster even had horns because many people did not report the presence of horns. It could have been fear running wild for some people or the monster could have just been having a bad hair day. There is a rare skin condition in humans, though, called a cutaneous horn, which is a type of keratinous skin tumor 
that basically looks like a horn-shaped fingernail protruding out from the skin. Typically, these occur on the face and hands where the skin might be damaged due to UV radiation, but there are multiple reports of cutaneous horns arising from burn scars, even in areas other than the face and hands. Jim Stevens reported that the burn scars were on the chest, arms, and face. So if the monster did genuinely have a horn or a pair of horns, my guess is that it was a cutaneous horn caused by the burn scars. Once you eliminate the scales and the horns, the reports become tremendously Sasquatch-like. Consistent with Bergman's rule that animals are larger in colder climates, Northern Bigfoots are typically reported between 8 and 10 feet, while Southern Bigfoots are typically reported around 7 feet. The Lake Worth monster being estimated at 7 feet is right in line with other Southern Sasquatches. It is said to have left a print that was 16 inches long by 8 inches wide at the toe base. By the lack of additional descriptors, such as three-toed or hoof-like, I can presume that the tracks were human-like in appearance, or at least human-like to the untrained eye. Obviously, in 1969, they could not have known about the anatomical work done by Grover Krantz and later by Dr. Meldrum. Grover Krantz didn't even investigate the famous Cripplefoot tracks until December of 1969, so these people would have just assumed that it was human. The average Bigfoot track is 15.6 inches long by 7.2 inches wide at the toe base. So again, the Lake Worth monster is consistent with our current profile of the Sasquatch species. Comparing the foot size to a human, a 16-inch print would be a size 26 shoe, and more ease in width than I could even find on a chart to tell you how wide it would be. Using standard human proportions, though, a 16-inch human foot would only be about 5.5 inches wide at the toe base, so you can really see how, from the ground up, Sasquatches are built to handle their bulk in a way that a 7 or really eight foot tall human cannot boast. Humans of that size can almost be crippled, particularly if their height came from a pituitary tumor and not genetics. Only a handful of people that are that height are very athletic, and those are the people that you see in the NBA, etc. Given that the foot is actually slightly larger than the average, I wonder if the Lake Worth monster was originally taller than seven feet, but had shrunk a few inches in old age. The only thing that I see that's a little uncharacteristic of the Sasquatch is the description of about 300 pounds, because most Sasquatches are estimated to be about 800 pounds. Obviously, 300 pounds is not that unusual even for humans. Most college football linemen are 300 pounds, if not more, at a height much below 7 feet. So 7 feet and 300 pounds would be kind of skinny. I'm guessing that the people who estimated 300 pounds just mean very large. Um, they're probably themselves about 150 pounds, right? So they just threw out a number that was much bigger than them. They didn't actually think about what it would anatomically take to be that height and that size. It's also possible that the Lake Worth monster appeared smaller than other Sasquatches due to less hair from the burn scars, or maybe it actually was skinnier because of its old age. Nevertheless, other than the scales and horns, which I've already explained, I see no reason to believe that the Lake Worth monster was anything other than an elderly Bigfoot trying to Yogi Bear some picnic baskets from the humans. I do want to briefly discuss the other school of thought coming out of the cryptozoological and preternatural fields that says we can't ignore that there are these other weird sightings of Bigfoot that appear paranormal and that we must consider that Bigfoot is actually an interdimensional alien-type creature rather than a strictly biological creature. 
Obviously, in the case of the Lake Worth monster, we have the reported ghost sightings at Greer Island that are happening in the same time frame. We also have the incident with the Lake Worth monster throwing a tire at what essentially was a trash dump for the local area. John Keel has the following footnote in his book, The Mothman Prophecies. Monsters, UFOs, and apparitions have an interesting affinity for garbage dumps and junkyards. Even the famous miracle at Lourdes, France in 1858 took place at the local garbage dump. So while I don't see anyone other than the one cute little boy claiming that the Lake Worth monster is an alien, there are some aspects that could align with a link to the phenomenon if you were looking for one. I want to provide what I see as some alternative explanations in the middle ground of the false binary thinking I'm seeing out there, with one group of people looking to discredit these sightings entirely and the other group of people looking to take these sightings as Bible. And these explanations range from the skeptical to the fanciful. It's just a thought experiment. First, there is the possibility that once you notice one weird thing, you're more likely to be looking out for additional weird things. So some of the reports could just be a coincidence that you happen to notice because you're looking more intently than usual. Two, there is the possibility that areas where you are more likely to spot a Bigfoot are also the areas where you're more likely to spot a UFO in remote areas without light pollution or cell phone service or other distractions. Three, some people point to the five octave range noted on the Sierra sounds as proof of a superhuman capability or super primate capability. I point you to Mr. Tim Faust of the Home Free Acapella Band, who has himself a five octave vocal range. I point you to Aretha Franklin, who had a vocal range over three octaves. The Sierra Sounds is one family or one group of Bigfoots. It's not a sample of the vocal capabilities of every Bigfoot. So that could have been the Vaughn traps of Bigfoots for all we know. For some people report a shimmering light around a Bigfoot. I wonder in those cases if those people are actually experiencing such an intense rush of adrenaline that their vision is just going fuzzy. Obviously, most people are not used to a situation in where they may actually be the prey and not the predator. Five, speaking on predators, we have to realize that while most of us humans have, for the most part, lost our predatory instincts, other than elite hunters and hunters of a different sort in the corporate boardroom, Bigfoot is still very much a predator. Big cats can trail you without you ever knowing that they are there. They can sneak in in such a way that they seem to jump from one location to another without you spotting how they did that. And also numerous predators hunt in packs, so you may see one animal, but there's five others you don't see, and you're alternating between which one that you do see. I think there is the distinct possibility that some of the bilocation and other eerie qualities reported could just be manifestations of normal predatory behavior that we no longer recognize. Six, and we're getting a little more fanciful here, it's possible that Bigfoot is a biological entity that interacts with natural portals in the same way that humans naturally interact with portals, which could explain some of the missing time and missing 411 incidents that humans report. It's even possible that living more in tune with nature in these remote areas, they've learned to harness the power of portals where we are just victims of them. Number seven, I know that Dr. Meldrum feels that they are descended from Gigantopithecus and have a smaller brain than modern humans, a brain more similar to that of a gorilla or chimpanzee. 
Notwithstanding his far greater expertise in biology, I lean towards the belief that they are more human than ape. Last year, Dr. Meldrum's journal, Relict Hominoid Inquiry, published a translation of an encounter with a Sidapa, also known as an orang pandek, in 1923. That witness specifically said he lifted his gun to shoot it, but dropped the weapon before taking a shot because deep down, it felt like he was committing a murder. The orang pandek is said to be a wild man smaller than humans, but clearly this animal was more human than ape if a European explorer in Indonesia in 1923 had serious qualms about harvesting a specimen. So then if we are dealing with a relict hominoid that is more human in appearance than ape, do they have a soul? And if that's the case, could people be seeing the ghosts of deceased Bigfoots? For some reason, if we see a report of a human that magically appears, crosses a room, and magically disappears, we categorize it as a ghost. But if we see a report of a Bigfoot that magically appears, crosses a yard, and magically disappears, we are now jumping to interdimensional aliens. And I just can't make that leap. Number eight, if we, again, are dealing with a relict hominoid, is it possible that they have managed to access more than 10% of their brain? In that case, even if they had a smaller brain than us, they might have stronger computing powers and possibly what we might think of as superpowers. Obviously, that is to some extent the plot of the So Bad It's Good movie, The Shadow, but we know that some Buddhist monks who have studied deep meditation for years can do seemingly impossible things. There are reports of Catholic saints performing levitation, by location, etc. It is something to be considered. And then nine, finally, if aliens or aliens or Ultra-terrestrials are capable of putting on a human mask, could they not also be capable of putting on a Bigfoot mask? There are legends of fairies taking a cow and replacing it with a horse, but glamouring the horse to look like a cow so that the humans don't know the difference. Glamouring is actually supposedly the primary magical capability of the fae in legends. So perhaps there are two types of Bigfoot sightings, Bigfoot as a biological entity and Bigfoot as a mask presented to us by another more preternatural type of entity. I understand that many people in the Bigfoot community are working so hard to get Bigfoot recognized by academia and science writ large that they don't want the redheaded stepchildren of the UFO community encroaching on their phenomenon. And boy, is there a lot of sloppy work out there in the Bigfoot community by very well-meaning but under-equipped researchers. So I understand the idea. But I think it's valuable to at least consider these questions, ponder them as possibilities, even if we ultimately dismiss them. At the same time, I think the UFO community needs to stop thinking everything is interdimensional aliens. There could be a biological explanation for some of these seemingly unexplainable sightings of Bigfoot. Without having a proper specimen, most of our understanding of Bigfoot anatomical capabilities is coming from what we can see on the Patterson-Gimlin film and similar resources. To some extent, we are all guessing. I certainly don't feel confident drawing any concrete conclusions and definitively saying that Bigfoot is more than just a biological entity, although I would pretty strongly say that Bigfoot does exist. But of course, despite me saying all of this, the reality is that the vast majority of Bigfoot encounters are not of this fantastical nature, so what are we really splitting hairs over? That is going to wrap it up for this episode. Thank you so much for bearing with me while I have this sinus infection. Last week it was stomach flu. This week it's the cold slash sinus infection. Hopefully next week it won't be. I threw out my back and got the full trifecta, but you know, with my luck, it could be anything. And until next time, may you never stop asking, what in the Sam Hills?